Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. In 2017, Homeless Gospel Choir released the emotive punk song Normal, in which lead singer Derek Zanetti sings, You're never going to be normal because you're punk. Homeless Gospel Choir started out as a Derek solo folk punk project, but blossomed into a full-on punk band featuring, amongst other people, members of Kitty Cat Fan Club, one of Mike Park's many projects. Derek grew up in a strict religious household but found himself through punk and ska. Music saved his life. Today we talk about the role ska played and how he grew to finally accept not being normal. Aaron, you grew up in a pretty religious household. I did. I did too. But I feel like Derek grew up in an even more religious household than either of us. Maybe. I feel like <laughs> I, I kind of related to a lot of what he said yeah. about his household. Yeah. Why is that? The only difference was is that my dad wasn't religious, but my mom was very religious, and the church we went to was extremely religious. So it's pretty connected to what he said about his household and his upbringing. Yeah. I feel like usually when Christianity gets brought up on the podcast, it's in kind of a fun, light way. Mm-hmm. This time I felt like it, you know, we we explored kind of the way it can be a little bit heavier and, and uh less enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, it could be a thing where uh, the the people that grow up in it have to work through something. Yeah, definitely. Also, we talked about ska. We also talked about ska. (laughs) In defense of ska. Yes, that's us. Hi. My first question I got for you is, um, what do you think of uh, the album uh, 40 Ounces to Freedom? Do you have any opinions on that record? I struggle with the, um, I, sh- I, I think that it's great that every human being make art and express themselves <laughs> in an artistic way. I think it's the thing that separates us from the beasts. But um, there are certain records that I, I would be fine with knowing that I didn't have to listen to ever again. <laughs> and I think that particular record is one of them for sure. All right. Yeah. Is there a person that likes this record um, that you accepted and that even though that you don't like it i'm referring of course to your song uh uh what is it called musical tastes or uh musical preferences musical yeah. preferences yes the thing about it aaron Carnes, is this that there's so many different varieties and genres of music that you and i still get to be great pals even if you happen to like music now wait a second if i think that it's terrible we're still allowed to be friends and like pursue a friendship and have different musical tastes 
That's true. Yeah. But so, you know, so often people allow something as silly as genre to, you know, rob them of something as precious as friendship. And, you know, I'm just not interested in that type of business. Yeah, no, I, I'm right there with you. Although I got to ask, um, uh, do you really not like uh, Fleetwood Mac? No, that was more of a knee jerk reaction. It was more of um, maybe it was more of, of an adolescent style mid- middle finger to an establishment album that sold, you know, 40 million copies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 40 million people can't be wrong. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Rumors is pretty much a classic record. I, I have one friend that loves to trash that album and he always goes um he likes to bring up that it cost a million dollars and a big bag of coke and that's his big punchline. and it's like you're right but it's a good record yeah i mean it's 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 a great it's it's um it's funny to make fun of because it's almost like an undeniable band and an undeniable yeah. album kind of like saying people don't eat pizza are stupid you're really just you're really marginalizing an entire giant group of folk sure yeah but then there's people who don't like pineapple on their pizza or pizza at all you know yeah, there are people that don't like pizza i mean go figure yeah okay so i feel like you're very excited to do this interview which i am just very i love that because you sent us you sent us some talking points and you sent us totally you sent us a, a, a photo of your ska tapes can we start with the ska tapes yeah let's talk about the ska tapes number one ska tape corn uh, no, the corn just happens to be in the same area. Okay. Um, I think my favorite Scott tape probably is um, "Suicide Machines Destruction." By definition, is probably my favorite Scott tape. Great, great album. Yeah, I love that record. That's an amazing album. I think I got this for five dollars out of some sort of a grab bag thing from um, from an online record store in the middle of COVID. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I got a bunch of them. I got the Aquabats, the Cadet Beach Party. Yeah. Um, I uh, that's a live that's a live album that Related Records put out. I got some Skank and Pickle and some uh, the Toasters and Fishbone and Corn too. There's a new ska band out there. I don't. I mean, I know y'all are hip to all, you know all the new shit, but there's this brand new ska band called Corn, and they use bagpipes. <laughs> uh, don't sleep on it. Y'all are gonna be sad if you do. I also like the Mighty Mighty Boss tones a good bit too. Yeah, you uh, in your in your line in your notes, you wrote that the uh, horn line to impression I get makes you sad. I don't know why. Maybe it's the progression of it. Maybe mm-hmm. it it. I don't know what makes me feel sad about it, but it makes me feel like going back to school. I don't know why, but whenever I hear that song, I think about like. Well, shit! I think we got to go back to back to school, and that's what I think of every time. <laughs> it just made me like summer's over, no more, no more, uh, you know, ska summer. It's you know back to school and books and teachers and you know the worst. Do you have a song like that, Aaron? Oh, I hadn't have never considered that before. I have one. What's yours? Um, uh, Fresh Prince's "Summertime." Oh, yeah. Every time I hear that, I just imagine sitting inside watching the video for that on MTV as the hours of my summer ticked by. And every time it would come on, I'd be like, I should be doing something instead of watching this video again. Nope. It sounds like a panic attack. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like, wait a second. I'm literally biting my fingernails waiting to go back to a thing that I hate. And the only thing I can do instead of actually enjoying my life is being stuck inside by my stupid self. 
Uh, so do you have a tangible memory that is attached to impression I get and yourself? Or does it just sound that way? It just sounds that way. I remember listening to the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones illegally. I wasn't I wasn't allowed to listen to my own music when I was a kid because my parents were part of like a super conservative evangelical like right wing church. and We weren't allowed to listen to the radio or find our own music. So I had like this super illegal setup of I was making dub tapes off the radio and we had like two like alternative underground radio stations in Pittsburgh, 105.9 The X and 104.7 The Revolution. And they would play underground music like from like eight to midnight on Sunday nights on both stations. And they would do like this, you know, have underground music. And I would find things like the Mighty Mighty Boston's and ska music that certainly wasn't... to me was completely new and completely fresh and completely underground. And it would give, you know, uh, smaller bands, you know, radio play. And um, yeah, that's how I discovered, that's how I discovered uh, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tens. Okay. So wait, walk us through your recording process for this. Okay. Would you just, would you just re- roll tape or were you, do you have like a thing where you're putting a towel down by the door so that the parent, your parents would think you were asleep? What were you doing? <laughs> so I have this super, these are great questions. Thank you so much, Adam Davis. That's a, just a, just a crackerjack of a question. Um, I I had like, it was like a clock radio um, and it had a cassette tape player on it that you could record on. And I had headphones and the whole bit. So I would go ahead, you know, Monday's school day, whatever. I would go ahead and, and, and get in bed and I would wait on the radio they would say up next new songs from Soundgarden, Nirvana, 311 and No Doubt and I would say okay well I've never heard of three of those bands so whenever they come in I'll record and then I would go ahead and edit it and like cut out the last bit because sometimes on the radio they would you know cut a song early or they would have like you know a song running into another song so like I would do like my own editing and stuff and start and stop it and you know, try and remember who, you know, what songs were what. And I would take them into my friends at school and be like, hey, what's this? And they would be able to tell me, oh, that's the, um, that's that new Offspring band that everyone's been talking about. And then I'd be able to, you know, follow along too. So would you exclusively listen to those um, like at school on a Walkman or something? So my friends went to, we went to like regular public school. So I had friends on the inside, you know, mm-hmm. friends that had the devil inside of them and listened to, you know, the radio. <laughs> so, um, I, I had my friend, his, uh, his name's Jay Colvin Senzo. He actually gave me uh, a cassette tape of Green Day Dookie, um, when I was in sixth grade. And, uh, I would, I would, you know, it was the first time I've listened to like a full punk album on my own. And it was sort of, you know, it was it, for me as an 11 year old, that, that record was earth shattering for me. Totally. I see. Yeah. So yeah, I would get tapes from like my buddies and like, I would bring them home and sometimes I'd make copies of that of offspring smash and uh, uh the like like super popular stuff that you'd be able to find in like tower records and whatnot yeah so for with for these tapes were you were you going out and getting new blank tapes or were you just recording over other stuff now my parents would get the sunday sermon on these white blank 90 minute tapes that they had just an absolute gaggle of and i would just you know they weren't missing any of them so i would just go ahead and just take one and put tape over the one side of it so that it would be able to record and i would just tape over the sunday sermons with you know 
Slayer and Megadeth and, you know, all the real rebellious demonic music that would really make your parents cringe, you know? Did you label them in a way so that if the parents found the stash, they wouldn't know it was music? No, because they were in my room kind of. And I kind of, there was a little bit of a gap between my bed and the shelf. And that's where I kept my tapes. Oh, so you hid the tapes. Totally. I got caught twice. I got caught twice with, with, um, with music and uh, both times it was removed from me. So I had to come up with pretty um, inventive ways of being able to smuggle it from my, from my parents. Did you get a speech when they were taken away or was it just taken away? Well, the second time there was a youth minister that came to our house and told me that Metallica master of puppets would might influence me to commit suicide or do things like burglaries or have premarital sex or have dirty thoughts or like, you know, a whole cornucopia range of sins from stealing a pencil to, you know, um, uh, burning a village down. So, you know, if the devil was inside of it, the devil could go get inside of me and cause me to do things that were bad. So the second time was more of like a, and it, it wasn't like they ever took it from you. They made you give them over. So it was like, you know, this is naughty and bad, but we know that, you know, the, the God wants you to do the right thing. So we're going to have you hand these over type of a type of a deal. So I did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had like, a, I grew up in a religious home too. And I had a no, no um, secular music rule, mm-hmm. but see, here's the thing. My mom, very religious, my dad, not religious. And so that was a thin wall that got, I pushed and broke through, you know, there, there was, it wasn't very fortified. Let's put it that way. Ted. Even though the church that we went to was ex- very extreme. Did you ever break through that wall or was it not until you were moved out of the house? I lived a very a radical binary existence. I knew that there was an outside world that was good. And I knew that the world that I had, you know, the world that I was involved in in, inside that church was frightening and scary to me. And I didn't relate to it very much. Mm -hmm. But I also my parents also didn't have money to send me to private school. So I also had a chance and a view to look into like a very secular world by going to public school. So like I you'd see a kid wearing like a, a, um, you know, a a silver chair frog stomped smash t-shirt and you're like what's silver chair and you would learn about other bands that way and i would have like a glimpse into this other world and i was like these people that listen to you know green day and Pennywise and no effects these aren't bad people they're not out there you know murdering and killing folks you know they just like to listen to this music unlike what i was told about like if you know if you do you you know the devil will cause you to do all these other terrible things so i was able to look at it and i, I did live a very closeted life where I was ashamed of both sides of it. I was ashamed that I was a sinner and I was ashamed that I was hiding and sneaking things from my parents on one hand. And then on the other hand, I was like, man, this is total bullshit. And like, this is totally just like fear mongering and have, you know, why do I believe this? Why do I hold tight to this? Because it was the only thing that I know. And I was, you know, forced to be afraid of it, but I, I definitely lived a pretty radical, um, two sides of the coin life, you know, up until I was about 22 years old, in fact. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's one of the most mind-blowing things about these sort of scenarios where you're raised in a religious household. You do these things that are like so benign and you feel like you're totally blowing it with God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my my parents, I mean, they took us to the Planned Parenthood with those big, huge signs and we had to pick it at Planned Parenthood. Like we weren't allowed to play with He-Man and, 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 uh, uh-huh. 
and 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 Thundercats, and we got our toys taken away. We weren't allowed to go to the movie theater. Like it was wild. Like it was it was totally a super. It was a fanatical cult like experience. But it was the only thing that I knew. So it was very. It was super. You know, normalized. Sure. You know, I saw my parents. You know, destroy their own record collection and give things over. You know, as some sort of like a physical sacrificial um expression unto god or it's like a a, a a you know i want to be obedient to the holy spirit in some way so i'm going to go ahead and you know not go to the movie theater or not let my kids listen to the radio or whatever um it was super strange but super strange became super normal and so like things like not being able to listen to the radio was just like a thing that i had to navigate i guess Wait, so just to back up for a moment, just for clarification, why couldn't you play with He-Man or Thundercats? I want to jump in and say I too was not was banned from He-Man, even though I didn't actually have an interest in He-Man. Uh, it must have, I think it must have gone around uh, the church uh, discussions yeah. because my mom once just came in one day. I had no He-Man. I never talked about He-Man. She's like, you're not playing with He-Man. I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, there was a book that was written um, called Turmoil in the Toy Chest, and it was a book that was circulated around um, evangelical Christian homes and churches about the demonic possession of the toys in your toy chest, and that the, there's evil in the plastic of the of the of the cockles of the plastic, and and if your kids play with them, the spirits that are inside of things like the Smurfs and Rainbow Bright might even turn your kids to be homosexuals. So you have to really, you know, make sure that they don't have, you know, play with Pippi yeah. Longstocking or Pee Wee Herman. I was devastated. I was, as a kid, I was so entranced by Pee Wee Herman. And I still am as a, as a, as a 38 year old, I'm still radically like in awe of Fairville and Pee Wee's Playhouse and the art and the imagery that goes along with that show. Sure. But because because of of peewee's effeminate nature and queer expression it was super frowned upon in like evangelical circles and like was absolutely roundly banned it was terrible because i was like i finally found like a fictional character that i could in many ways relate to finally like in this super weird world that i like grew up in i was like wow there's this person that kind of feels like i feel kind of and then immediately no peewee herman which I, I celebrate Pee-wee's entire catalog now as a complete independent thinker and adult on my own. So I, you know, I don't feel like I lost real that much time, but yeah, Pee-wee Herman was a big, huge issue. Wow. Yeah. I know that you, you had mentioned in one of your notes that Five Iron Frenzy were a gateway band for you. Were you like involved with like, you know, listening to Christian music and going to Christian shows in general? Yeah, there was um, at the Christian family bookstore, they used to have stickers on their records. And it said, if you're fans of the Descendants <laughs> and Bad Religion, then you'll really love this Christian band, MXPX. Um, if you're a big fan of, um, you know, any type of subgenre of music, there's a Christian version available for you now, too. So they, they, there was kind of like this model that, like, if you, you know, parents would take their kids that were starting to come of age to, you know, like their own music. And, you know, if you liked Metallica, there was a Christian version of it for you. If you liked, you know, if you liked um, literally almost anything, there was like a Christian, uh, you know, if you liked the Beastie Boys, you could listen to DC Talk. And it was like a Christian version of it. And it was just absolutely the worst. Yeah. And the weirdest thing, I, I, I myself was never a fan of metal. 
Um, but there was like a huge um, metal section and like the most brutal subgenres of metal, like death metal, you know, speed metal, like the most extreme versions of metal. There was like a massive section for those particular styles. And, and they were like indistinguishable sonically. You know, you couldn't understand any of the lyrics but they were better lyrics, allegedly. And the artwork really looked exactly the same because they would take sort of like those like scary revelations imagery from the la- from the last chapter of the Bible, which was basically, totally. basically what non-Christian ska bands were, I mean, sorry, non-Christian metal bands were doing in the 80s too, right? So totally. <laughs> it was really hilarious to me. But I, I had just kids that were my age that were involved in youth group that also happened to be involved or interested in, in in alternative music there was just a band that came out of nowhere that were huge overnight called five iron frenzy and the songs were catchy and they were good not just like thrown together they were like better than what i could have imagined you know the the, the real version of of what they were trying to rip off would have been like all the other bands that were you know synonymous with that type of culture and yeah five iron frenzy just were that band for me so were they the first like christian band that you like were like this is a good band or was there other ones that you liked um there were other ones that i liked at the time um that i still like to this day um i'm a huge fan of pedro the lion and david bazan and all of the different incarnations of of that songwriter i like him yeah uh a super bizarro band at that time called the danielson family oh Hell yeah. I fucking love Danielson family. Like I've played with them before. I have all of their records. I think they're absolutely groundbreakingly creative and uh, uh, super smart and fun. Um, so there are bands that like I, I, I was I was hip to then that I com- that I didn't completely just like toss off the edge. And I'll, I mean, I still listen to my MXPX records to this day. I'll put on slowly going the way of the Buffalo and jam out super hard for sure. Did you ever watch the Danielson family documentary? About a thousand times. Yeah, totally. Oh, it's so good. It is amazing. It makes me feel like <laughs> it would be possible to be a Christian kind of like the way that they talk to each other about like, this is just love because we have love for each other. And we think that there's a God who loves us. And we just want to show other people that version of that love. And I was like, well, if it was explained to me like this, maybe I wouldn't hate it so damn much. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Did you, um, did you go see Five Iron Frenzy live during this period? Um, n- no, I didn't see Five Iron Frenzy live, but I did see a band called the OC Supertones. Um, I think I saw them play maybe eight times live. Oh, wow. So wow. tell Tell, tell us what that experience was like or any any of those concerts well they were all in like church youth group type scenarios which are the only ones that my mom would let me kind of go to until i got to the point where i could tell my mom to drop me off in the college part of town because there was a show and then me and my friend brandon would just go to club Laga to see you know regular bands um but so there was like there was a there was a show at this place called pittsburgh east which is like a, a church that's in Pittsburgh. And it was just like any other type of youth group type of an experience, except that it was at a punk show. You paid your fee to get into the door, you got in, and there were just like three bands that played. There were souvenirs in the back. You know, after the show, your mom picks you up in the minivan and you go home. Would there be a group group prayer before the show? No, there was never any of that that I can remember. There always was a, like a weird separation between um, uh, 
the boys and the girls. Like there mm. was always like a super weird youth groupy thing where like people weren't allowed to hang out with people um, in like a, if they were interested in dating, like it was a super bad thing. Like they really, in our church anyway, they always preach like abstinence and like premarital sex will kill you. And you know, all this, all this other type of nonsense. So like going there and ha- hoping to have just like an organic, interesting conversation with uh, 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 somebody of a, of a different sex or gender was, was you know, uh, unheard of and unthought of. Wow. What did OC2 Supertones, and I've heard, I've never seen them live. I heard that they definitely put on, did a little sermonizing during their set. They were of that cut for sure. They definitely would say like, a, you know, make like some sort of a sermon he preached, but I don't remember any type of like a corporate prayer offering, but I could, I could just block that out too. Was there any sort of like worship element to like a worship breakdown? I don't recall that either. I think they just played the songs. Like, I think they just played the songs from the record. I don't remember. Like, I remember, I remember sometimes like, you know, even the Dropkick Murphys or Flog Molly will play like Amazing Grace and have be like, be like some sort of like spiritual moment or whatever. But I think it was kind of like a nod to that and not like trying to usurp it and like turned into like some sort of an evangelical Christian type of a deal. Yeah, it's weird because my experience, like um, I wasn't doing the Christian thing at all. Uh, by the time like the the ska thing, this Christian ska thing was happening. So I've never, I've never experienced a Christian ska band with the exception of Five Iron Frenzy at Ska Against Racism, but that's not a Christian event, right? Yeah. Um, but I have seen plenty of Christian shows like rock bands and stuff like Petra and stuff like that. And totally. those bands always had like, like uh, usually there was a sermon, ele- sermon element, but there was almost always like, okay, okay, we're going to, we've been having fun guys, but we're going to, we're going to have to bring it down. And they would just do like uh praise hymns for like a, a couple songs. And like, you were expected to like raise your hands and sing along. And that was like the real part, you know, that was the serious part. Everything else was just goofing off and having fun. And then it was back to, you know, once we got through that, then it was fun again. It's so manipulative. If you think about yeah. it, like let's lure these kids into this space under the pretense that they're going to be going to a rock and roll event. And then halfway through, we're going to go ahead and talk about the devil and sin and fear and separation from God, and then give all those kids an opportunity to receive Christ a or B burn in hell for literally all of eternity. It's so manipulative. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so over here in California, Northern California, um, there's a um, amusement park called uh, Great America, or is that what it's still called, Adam? I think so. Okay. It, when I was a kid, it was called Great America. Um, you know, rides, roller coasters, all that. And so every year there was a Christian day there. And um, it was a, it was like only churches. And there was like three or four stages set up. And just it was just a massive Christian rock festival. And uh, it, it was like, it was like, uh, an even higher level of manipulation, like you're explaining, like you're lured into like, you get to go all day at this amusement park. There's less people because it's only churches, there's bands playing, but yeah, it's just pure message sent at you the whole time. Yeah. And like people, music is a thing that makes you emotionally vulnerable to begin with the way that the, the songs build and, and the way that you connect with the lyrics and, and and the emotional rush that you get whenever you get to see live a live band play 
a song that you're familiar with and you sing along to it and your friends are there. It's super communal. It's super, it's super emotional. And then to just all of a sudden, while you're in a state of, of frenzied emotionalism to go ahead and drop something on you, like your eternal salvation as like a 12 year old, mm-hmm. it's super fun, like all the way. Yeah. And it's always, yeah. Like you said, you're pre- it's presented as though in this moment right now, you must decide, you know, it's not like, Hey, I think you should think this over. It's like, decide right now. <laughs> I just want to get a king size frosty at Wendy's after the gig. That's all I care about. Like, do you think your mom will take us through the drive through at Wendy's on the way home? <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Do you still like, I, I, I'm curious, has Five Iron like carried on with you the way um, MXPX and some of these other bands have? Um, I think that my, my, um, my appreciation for ska music today is roundly for current ska bands who are doing it today. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it brings me any joy as much as it did when I was then to listen to that type of music. Um, but I, 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 you know, my friends who play in ska bands, my friends who are out on tour doing that stuff, like, I think that that's super great. And I, I support that. But like going going back and putting on, you know, um, or finding records like that, I probably I just don't. You like um, um, you like Dissidente? That's a band that you're really into? I think well, they're buddies of mine from Pittsburgh. I think they're I think they're great. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're a newer ska band. Yeah. I like that. I like that bad operation band from down south. I think they're great. Brian Freitas's band. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they got a good sound to them too. Um, who else do I like a whole bunch? Obviously, I like that new Suicide Machines record, but they're not a new band, so they don't count. Um, who else do I like a whole pile? Um, I got that new Bruce Lee band album. Yeah. That Division in the Heartland. Do you like that one, Aaron? Oh, hell yeah. That's a great record. Have you met Mike Park before? Me and Mike are buddies. Yeah. All right. Tell us tell us about the first time you met Mike. Well, he was in town in Pittsburgh doing a wedding for uh, for a friend. And we went to um, Pat from Anti-Flag owned a, a restaurant in a fancy part of town. So Mike Park was in town and we went to, to Pat's restaurant. We had, we had dinner. Do you remember what Mike ordered? <laughs> Do you remember what Mike ordered? Yeah. yeah. And did Mike have to pay? No, Mike did not pay. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Mike, Mike was so happy. Um, how do you think he got so rich? He never paid. <laughs> That's the secret. 
now i don't know mike's always been mike's one of my favorite people he set such a great example uh, about how kindness and friendship actually works and that if you're honest and you have integrity and you and you look somebody in the eye and you tell them you're going to do something and you do it and you put out the music that you believe in and like he's i don't know i think he's the He's up there with 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 Discord and Ian McKay for me, mm-hmm. um, yeah. as far mm-hmm. as like somebody who actually lives it and 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 does it. I love I love Mike with all my heart. He's the best. So so your band, the current version of your band, there's some members that are also in Mike's band, Kitty Cat Fan Club, right? Megan plays in Kitty Cat Fan Club, and Mora plays in Ogi uh, Kubo Station. Okay, and well, we're just buds too. And um, I've known more for for quite some time. We played a show, I want to say in 2010 in Pittsburgh um, with mixtapes and direct hit. And we met then and just, you know, continued to be buds. And I was putting I was putting a band together with these new songs that I was writing as like full band rocker songs. And I was thinking about if I could just have my perfect band and and get to have my my favorite all star lineup of all time, who would I want to be in it? And I just asked and and, and they decided to be in my band, too. So was this before or after they were playing with Mike? Oh, after. Okay, so, so they were already playing with Mike. Okay. Yeah. But they live in Pittsburgh. So, well, they live in Cincinnati. Oh, okay. So they they live they live kind of close. We don't have to drive too far for practice. Well, I live in Lancaster now, so I do have to drive pretty far if we're going to practice. Um, <laughs> but whenever we do, we get together for like a, a week or sometimes longer at a time, and we do a whole bunch of work in 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 as much time as we can. And that's how we've been able to to be a band, especially in the last eighteen months. Okay, so backing up a little bit, when did you start playing music? Well, that, that's a great question. Um, thank you for asking it, Adam Davis. I think um, I I was singing in like a crust punk band for a bit, and that wasn't the best. It was not good. I didn't. I I we played a couple shows, but the songs weren't that great. I knew I wanted to be in a band, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and crust punk at the time was something that I was interested in. Why you might ask? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, why I was interested in crust punk at the time, but I know that I was. And um, just played a couple local shows. And um, in 2008, I got, in, I got an apartment on my own and um, uh, in the city of Pittsburgh. And I decided that I wanted to go head out and start playing some open mic nights. And I wanted to go ahead and just put some songs together. And I wasn't really good at guitar but I could play some Johnny Cash songs and I could play some Ramones songs. And I kind of just threw those two styles together. And I just started to write like these acoustic punk songs. And I started to play some, well, you know, local open mic night stuff around the city of Pittsburgh. How old were you at this time? Oh, well, um, let me go ahead and think about that. 26, <laughs> 26 years old. Wow. So he started, started playing at 26. That's a fair bit older than most people who start playing music. Well, that is true. Um, that would, I think that could, there, there could be some truth in there. I mean, um, I didn't, I didn't know, um, how can I say this and sound fair? I didn't know, I didn't know that what was possible for me as a young person because of the way that I was raised. And it wasn't until I was able to be free from that, that I was able to make decisions on my own for my own um, for my own well-being and for the things that I actually cared for on my own behalf. So, yes, I would agree with you in 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 roundly 
then it's probably a late start to find interest in something as as uh as predated as punk rock but for me it was kind of like a reawakening or kind of like a rebirth in some ways that um yeah i was super thankful for yeah so um just to kind of touch base touch on something you said um you yeah. talked about and this is in your song normal so we'll, we'll kind of frame it as the the lyrics of normal uh kid a kid gave you the tape of green day tape in 94 and then mm-hmm. there's another line that i'm interested in where you said that um you were talking to a kid with dreads and you told him that you don't want to feel strange anymore, but he said that you're never going to be normal. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about this. I was struggling at the time um, in my life with, with a bunch of, a bunch of things, Um, addiction and uh, some undiagnosed mental health. And um I was talking, inviting into a friend that I had at the time. And I was like, I just don't feel like I'll ever be normal. I don't feel like I'm ever going to be able to, I, I, I just, I feel like, um, I feel like a stranger in a strange place. I don't feel like I'm connected to anything. I, I, I I'm skeptical. I, I don't know who to trust. I feel, I feel unsure and uneasy. And they said, well, of course you're never going to be normal because you're a punk. You think differently than, than, than the way that they've conditioned you to. And it's just now that you're discovering that. But, it, you know, there's no expiration date on it. I'm glad you came around. And it was like a very, man, a very welcoming and very endearing and very kind of um, inclusive type of gesture that I, I think I've, I've been longing for for quite some time. When was this? Was this... Um... Were you, was this like out of high school or was this older? This was after college. This was probably in like 2005, I would say. Okay. Yeah. So I was about 22. Okay. So do you feel like you were, uh, some of it was that you were still torn by, you know, the stuff we talked about already, your childhood and the, and the, this, I, this warped sense of right and wrong and what, what you, you were drawn to as well? I think, I think so. I think, I think there was a bit of um, shame and there was on, like I said before, like on both hands of it, it was, I was ashamed to leave in some ways. And then I was also ashamed that I hadn't left soon enough. So it felt like a double-edged sword to me that like, it was uncomfortable no matter which way I went. Either I felt guilty for being a dope and keeping, you know, keeping or keeping it around so long in my life, I should have left years ago. And then part of me was like, well, if you leave, you know, then what? Right. And a lot of religions have that in there also, or if you, if you turn your back on it, like that's totally like absolutely the worst thing you can do. Yeah. My mom is still like a very, my father has passed, but my mother is still like a very, um, faithful believer and she tells me that she prays for me all the time and because i love my mom and i don't want to have like any severance of our relationship i always just say thanks mom i appreciate it um you know you know thank you for saying prayers for me but like i I, you know even though they you know my mom knows that i don't uh carry those same beliefs i certainly don't want to estrange her in some way by me being you know difficult about it did did that moment in 2005, do you feel like that was a, a real turning point in your life in terms of like that would set you on the path to, you know, basically where you are, where, where you are right now? It was a radical shift for me. It was in February of 2005 and I just found I needed to belong and I needed to have friends and I needed to I, I needed to be somewhere where I felt like I could feel safe and that I could um, be myself. 
and I, and I found that friendship mm-hmm. in this, in this group of weirdo punk rock kids that, that in, in many ways welcomed me in and, and gave me, gave me friendship and gave me family and gave me belonging and gave me purpose. And, um, it was, tr- it, it was truly like a beautiful moment for sure. Yeah. The, um, the live record that you put out, I think it was this year, um, mm-hmm. and, that, and that you have a live, I think it was the beginning of this song, the, the intro. Um, were you talking, you're talking about the inclusivity of punk rock. Was that, that this song? Yes. That was, um, I, I feel like just, just hearing what you said in that, and just as that intro kind of choked me up a little bit. Like, I know it's the ideal of punk rock. We don't, we don't always hit it, but it is the ideal mm-hmm. the, that we're all welcome. And mm-hmm. it's a judgment, you know, judgment free zone, if you will. So, I mean, obviously that's, that's what, um, the beauty of it that, that brought you in and, and gave you you know, a comfort in your own identity. And I think, I don't want to sound pandering whenever I say this, but I think it's important for people to hear out loud with their own ears that they're welcome, Hmm. that there's a place for them to go. Um, Especially kids who come from poverty, especially kids who come from abuse, especially kids who come from addiction, like that there's there's a place for you to be that you're loved and you're beautiful and you're welcomed and you're, and we're here for you. And just because, you know, just because you felt like you never had a place to belong ever before, doesn't mean we're going to turn you away either. And for me, punk rock was certainly that punk rock was a savior in many ways. Like for the first time able to ask questions of myself that I'd never been able to ask before. And, and, and things that I just been told as, as gospel truth, my entire life, being able to come up with my own opinions about and, 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 and shake off some of the, 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 the wrong things that I had to unlearn. And, um, yeah, finding punk rock for me was, 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 especially in the, in the time that I, that I found it and, and the people that, that really, um, for the second time, for the real time in 2005 really did radically save my life for sure. That process of unlearning. I mean, I think all, all three of us have probably gone through that a bit. Adam's Adam grew up Mormon, by the way. Yeah. I grew up Mormon. Totally. Is there anything that still like sticks with you that you still like struggle with? Totally. I have, I have to unlearn everything even now. Um, everything, you know, the way that we treat other people, the way that, the way that patriarchal systems that are, are reinforced by um, Western Christian narrative, I had to remove some of that thinking from my life. I, my, my mother was completely dependent on my dad. She had no autonomy at all whatsoever. My mom didn't even have a damn checking account. You know, she relied completely and solely on my dad's provision. And like, that was the example of what was set for me about like what the model of my future could possibly be. So there was a lot of things I had to unlearn about about what my role is um, and what my responsibilities are. Um, Racism, you're not born a racist. Racism is learned and anything that you learn, you can unlearn. And it's a process and it's, and it's something that you have to be fucking dedicated to and stick with and admit whenever you're wrong and say, I didn't know. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm working to find the right answers too. And um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still learning a whole bunch. <laughs> yeah. What was the, um, the scene in that, in that period of time, the 2005 era, mm-hmm. was there, was there local bands and stuff that were really important to you? Totally. Um, there was a local band from Pittsburgh called Caustic Christ. 
and they're like uh, really they remind if I, if you took like Black Flag and Black Sabbath and you put them together, that's what they kind of sounded like, like mm-hmm. sludgy kind of fast hardcore punk. And I really really like that band a whole bunch, um, uh, for sure. But I would just I just I was just I was just so enthralled with being a part of like a subculture or countercultural uh, expression that I was just going to any show that I could at the Elks Lodge, at the bar, at the, at the in the church basement. Anytime I knew that there was a punk show in town or even close, like, you know, within an hour's drive, I was I was always very eager to go and check it out and make friends with the band and, you know. I'll let you. Was there any um, ska bands part of that kind of larger scene when you were, you know, in that in that kind of active mode? No, that not that I can recall. There was a band from Pittsburgh called Distorted Penguins, and um, I remember I remember going to see them twice, um, and they were kind of like a fun um, third wave ska band, similar to uh what you would um you would find in, in in a mustard plug album okay it's not ska but um my friends played in a band uh in a band flatfoot 56 at the time but they have bagpipes and that's different can i ask you a question aaron Carnes? you're you're a specialist in this topic and i need to ask you a question if that's okay yeah does it have to have horns to be ska no no um well okay if you want to get technical there's like rhythmic things that define ska um you know the walking bass you know the offbeat on, on the on guitar uh the the mm-hmm. drums there's a specific way to play drums but you know a kind of ska has evolved to you know there's even loose connections to some of these things gotcha you have to in order to have a great ska band you have to have a good bass player i think yeah. in my humble opinion yeah. It's the it's it's truly it's it's the super glue that's holding it all together. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. The bass player is extremely important and will make or break the ska band. When we stay in Detroit, we always stay with Rich and Lacey. Rich plays bass in the Suicide Machines, and we always sleep over their house. And sometimes we'll go and have a barbecue in the backyard. And 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 Rich always makes us a big um, tofu scramble in the morning. It's nice. How did you meet Rich? I was on tour with Zach Quinn from the band Pears. And we had stayed in Detroit together. And um, me and Rich fell in love immediately. Oh, yeah. Tell us a a nice Rich story. Well, he does make great breakfast scrambles, but we played his birthday. One of the last shows that we played before before, uh, lockdown is that we went to Detroit and we played Rich's birthday. I almost gospel choir played his birthday. how, How old was he? Do you remember? A million, maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, 38, maybe? 39? Do you remember who else played that day? Uh, he had a, him and a bunch of his buddies that play in a country band opened up that gig. Oh, yeah. So he was up there playing and drinking and sweating and the whole bit, and then we just closed it out. There might have been a band that played after us, but I was, I think I was busy smoking weed in the parking lot, to be truthful with you. <laughs> now, when you can think back to that show... Did it was did it even occur to you at all that that would be your last live show for what a year and a half? No, the last official last show we were we were in we were in Detroit to play Black Christmas with Anti Flag and the Suicide Machines and Mustard Plug played that, that gig and a bunch of other bands played too and that was the official last gig and no I did not even for one second think that this was going to be the last gig that I'd play for nearly two coming up on two years. Um, 
I mean, I played a solo tour. I was I I, I went on tour with Anti Flag in January and February of that uh, of 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 twenty twenty one. I was in Europe with them, but uh, but there was it wasn't full band, and it's different. Yeah, how was how was that? Those shows were great. Mm-hmm. Anti Flag is a big deal over there. I mean, they're 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 a juggernaut band over there in Europe. They play these big, huge, fancy shows, and everybody claps and loves them so much. So it was nice to get some free claps out of the deal too. <laughs> How was it getting up and just playing acoustic in front of an audience like that? Well, I've done it a good bit. I went, I, I opened up, I opened by myself on a solo acoustic guitar. I opened up for Frank Turner over there in the UK. And that those shows are, I mean, do you know who Frank Turner is? Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. He's, he's a big deal over there. I mean, it, it was every night was just a whole gaggle of folks. So um, I'm, I, I wasn't a stranger to it, but the kids, Punk kids are harder to impress. The kids that go to Frank Turner's shows, you know, they play Frank Turner's music in fucking Target. So like, you're just getting, you know, those the people the people who went to his shows like they they I, I don't think they were expecting me just to play an acoustic guitar and get down on the floor and play. But the punk kids are like, oh, you know, we've seen, you know, we've seen this before. You're you're this isn't that special, but they still like. <laughs> I, I've been on tour with Anti Flag a whole bunch, so they're they're always super nice to me and always let me let me open up their shows, which is cool. Nice. What is your feeling about um, you know playing solo versus playing with a band? Do you feel like you have a better connection solo, or you know how, how are they different to you? I got to a place where I don't think I could have done it anymore. How come? My anxiety was just getting super bad, and like it's a lot to, it's a lot to just be up there by yourself time after time after time again. And yeah, it's great to be on tour with a band whenever you're able to just be in the van or be in a bus with a band and just make buddies. But, you know, sometimes, you know, for, for 10 years, for a long time, it was, you know, just me and my car, just going from place to place by myself. And it's just, it, it wasn't as fun as I wanted it to be. And the moments that I did have fun, in, in most cases, I was celebrating that fun by myself after the gig, you know, sleeping on somebody's floor in a hotel room by myself. So having a band to celebrate our victories with is is, is a much uh, more rewarding um, sense of celebration for me. Yeah. Was the was the anxiety because of was it from being on stage alone or was it the, all the stuff around it being alone? Um it's driving six hours a day and trying to find a parking spot and loading in and sitting around an empty venue for four hours and then playing and then, you know, sitting at the table for hours after the gig and then driving yourself to a place to stay. And yeah, there's just some solitary stuff. And the shows were great. Like I had a great time and I had tons of friends out on the road, but just the constantness of always facing solitary alone time made me feel uncomfortable. I see. Yeah. Hurry, hurry up and wait with a band is is already pretty brutal hurry up and wait yourself like that could be like really mentally damaging yeah it's in some cases it was terrible i I mean i've been fortunate that most of the touring that i've done i've been i've been in the company hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Plenty of other bands in a caravan type situation where they'd just throw me in their van and would go for it. But um, yeah, driving by yourself is a bear for sure. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. 
So you toured with Leftover Crack? I did, yes, Aaron Carnes. That's a, yes. <laughs> As a solo artist or a full band? As a solo, oh yeah. Okay, did you tour in the van with them? No, I didn't. I was, I was not in the van with them, no. So what was it like touring with Leftover Crack? They kind of have a reputation for being, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Crazy. Crazy is the word. <laughs> um, yeah, un- unruly at times. Um, I should say that I had uh, roundly a great experience that um, the friendships that I made on on that tour, I still have and cherish to this very moment um, with most of the people that I, I was on that tour with. Um, my, I became really close with Alec and, um, we were, we were really, really, really good friends. And, um, uh, I miss him a whole bunch. I think about him a lot. Yeah. And, um, every time I get in New York, he would always, we would go get some sort of a vegan diner somewhere and talk about the Pixies. And we'd talk about like all the bands that we love and tour and just being buds. And like, he was a big friend and a big supporter of 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 mine and i um he is probably the best friend that i had made from that tour and um but yeah times also happen to get crazy out there for sure um i think uh scott misbehaves sometimes knowingly and uh (laughs) is disruptive knowingly and is demanding knowingly and makes people feel uncomfortable knowingly um but yeah, what do you do? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. When when they ask you to go on tour, if you want to have the experience, so you say yes, of course. <laughs> so it was it was Scott's fortieth birthday when we were in Seattle. Okay. And um, Anti Flag bought him a cake, and we were at the Crocodile. Have you ever been to the Crocodile in Seattle? No, no. Okay. It's a sweaty, dimly lit, um, rectangular venue. Um, uh, rectangular, like how a cassette tape would look sitting on its side. So that the room, the stage is like kind of in the middle and there's a lot of room to the left and there's a lot of room to the right, but there's not a whole bunch of room in front. Um, and during the middle, uh, during the middle of anti-flag set, they, um, they said, Hey, we want to bring Scott up here on stage and would like to wish him a happy birthday. So, um, so they go ahead and they start singing happy birthday to you. And they start singing to Scott and I don't know if Scott's not having it or he just wasn't in the mood for it, but he just takes the cake and throws it into the crowd. Um, (laughs) so they're in a, it's, it's hot in a very poorly insulated room in Seattle. Um, all the bands have played at a show at a leftover crack show, anti-flag played war on women played. uh, I played too. So like it was a fully loud, everyone's sweating. It smells like a punk show. And then there's a cake that's just thrown out into the crowd. So while Anti-Flag is finishing the second half of their set, kids are just throwing fistfuls of buttercream icing onto the stage while they're supposed to be playing. And the whole stage turns into like a slip and slide. You know, Chris <laughs> does all those crazy acrobatics when he plays and he's jumping off the amps and doing backflips and all that type of mess. And like, they're slipping and sliding everywhere. Well, <laughs> that's not the end of it. So they go ahead and they clean up the stage and, and, and everyone in Anti-Flags is covered in this sweet sugary icing and there's cake everywhere and it's all over the kids in the crowd. And something happens from the time that the cake gets thrown till the end of the show where Sturgeon in some ways, and this is just a loose, I was not in this exact spot when this happened, but I was part of the group chat 
where all where it was explained to me in great, great detail that night. I guess at the crocodile, you're allowed to have drinks on stage and you're allowed to have drinks in the green room, but you're not allowed to have drinks in the back hallway and between the stage and the green room. And I guess they had asked him to get rid of his drink on his birthday and he didn't like that. So I think from what I understand, he got into a physical altercation with the security guard and may or may not have thrown an aluminum ladder in the direction of a police officer. And then they beat him up on his birthday and they dragged him out the back of the crocodile on his 40th birthday. Um, wow. And that's, that's one of, that's one of the stories that I have from being on tour with leftover. Crap. Wow. I, I mean, you got to wonder if like he wanted to be arrested on his 40th birthday, if that was his way of celebrating. I think there is, and forgive me cause I don't mean to sound crass, but I think there is some sort of like a, um, uh, this, this wonderful affection towards like burning out. Or like having like some super terrible, disruptive, chaotic thing to like memorialize your time here in punk rock, like going out like Darby Crash kind of a situation. And I just don't I don't know. It doesn't appeal to me very much, but I think that I should allow people to express themselves in any way that they want as long as they're not hurting other people. I guess that's all I could say about it. Yeah, yeah. I want to just uh, we'll st- take a step back again. Um, we were talking we were talking about the tapes earlier, and um, yeah. you mentioned that I can't remember which tape it was, but you mentioned you got it during the pandemic. Did you get all these tapes recently? These Scott tapes? No, I've I've been collecting tapes for a number of years. Okay. Um, I, I for for quite some time. Yeah, I have a, I have a I have a couple. I maybe two thousand cassette tapes. Have any of the tapes that you made off of your um. <laughs> That you, yeah when you're recording off the radio have any of those no i i sure do wish that i did though i i oh. wish that i would have been able to hold on to them but uh, over over the years of yeah i just I, I i don't know i i'm sure they're somewhere what was the one that you said earlier that you'd bought in recently during the pandemic um was it the aquabats yeah the the beach party that's what it was yeah was that was that the only uh, was that the only thing you bought at that little so where where was this at no so they have like you can just go ahead and buy like an auction like you can you'd be like oh we have punk tapes five five ramones tapes you can get acid eaters animal boy pet cemetery single and ramones mania for 20 bucks so i would just go ahead and see people who were selling things like that on ebay or on discogs and i would just buy a lot of tapes because there are certain bands that i just collect in general like it doesn't matter that i have five copies of they might be giants lincoln if i find another copy of they might be giants lincoln i'm gonna buy it the same with um the dead milkman i think i have i have i have four copies of metaphysical graffiti on cassette tape and four copies of bucky fellini by the dead milkman on cassette tape the pixies and the b-52s and the smiths and let me see and fugazi and the beatles and the beach boys those are just tapes that if I if I see them and I happen to be out, I just get them. And even if I have a number of different copies of them, I like to collect them. So, what do you do with the extra copies? Just hang on to them, or do you trade them away? Oh yeah, they just look cool on the wall. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes I also give them away as gifts. Like if I find out that somebody also is a cassette tape nerd, I won't just give them just like a regular basic ass, you know, cassette tape. I'll give them a sealed copy of, you know. Um, Tom Waits bone machine or like something that's like super duper cool and kind of rare um, just as like a, Hey, you know, here's a cool cassette tape. Nice. What is it about cassettes that you like? I think they're compact. 
Um, they look super cool on a wall. Um, we had a, we had a flood at our house and I lost a big, huge piece of my record collection. And there was a bunch of classic albums in there that I, that I never thought that I would ever have to rebuy again. Like, you know, uh, rancid outcome, the wolves and the miseducation of Lauren Hill and bad religion against the grain and records that just got absolutely, you know, flooded. And I, I lost. And um, I wanted to go ahead and have those titles again. And I wanted to have those albums again, but I didn't think that I was interested necessarily in paying, you know, 25 and $30 to go ahead and replace those albums in my collection. But, you know, anytime you'd go to a record store or a dollar bin, you'd always find cassette tapes. And um, yeah, I just started to buy those. And I have, a, I have, a, I, I have a pretty, I got a bunch of pretty cool, rare, rare tapes in my collection that I got for, you know, some of them a dollar. I got a, I got an, I got a sealed copy of Nas Illmatic at a yard sale for a quarter. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. What are some of your other uh, tape, uh, uh, you know, your prized possession cassettes? Okay. I have, um, I have a sealed copy of no effects, punk and trouble. Okay. Uh, I have a sealed copy of, uh, just the genius liquid swords. I have two copies of the motion picture soundtrack to the movie Angus. I have um, uh, some Japanese imports of Radiohead albums, Kid A and Amnesiac. Um, what else do I have that's fancy and special? Um, oh, I have a copy of Weezer Pinkerton on cassette tape. Um, what else do I have that's cool? About a bunch of Husker Du and Black Flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have every Tribe Called Quest album ever. Um, I have a sealed copy of Paul's Boutique, an original original copy of, of Paul's Boutique on cassette tape. Nice. Sealed. Raekwon, I only built for Cuban Links. I have that. That's one of my favorite hip-hop albums. Um, I ha- Well, I, I collected a bunch of R.E.M. at one time, and then I was like, I can't listen to R.E.M. anymore. So I got rid of, I got rid of most of my R.E.M. tapes. Why can't you listen to REM anymore? I just think I've got enough of it. I think I have all that all the REM that can fit inside of my heart is already inside. <laughs> of it. And I just don't think I have any room for any more of it. I, I noticed on your tape you got um, Fishbone, Truth and Soul, and Reality in My Surroundings. Those are those are a couple nice ones. Yeah, those are classics, Scott. I I mean, I, I always struggled calling Fishbone Scott in general because I thought they were so creative and outside the boundaries of genre. And I think I still do believe that. Like some of the times I listen to Fishbone, I'm like, man, this is like a proper metalcore song. Um, yeah, they're they're a wild band. I, I don't think they would consider themselves a ska band, but ska was definitely a major influence. And then they themselves influenced ska in a significant way. So yeah. Yeah, big time. They're definitely like a um, a fusion band, you know. Totally. They, they could do pretty much anything they wanted to do. One of the other tapes I wanted to bring up in, in this um, lineup is the Dingies album. That's a, um, they're a Christian ska band, aren't they? Totally. Um, that record, Armageddon Massive, I still, I still bang that record pretty hard. I think it's super duper great. They're like stoners now. They're like really <laughs> into like, so I think that it's fine to like them. I don't know. I, I'm just kidding. I, I just, I really, I just, I think that that record was good. And it was like a, I heard that record before I heard The Clash. So once I heard The Clash, I was like, this band's ripping off the dingies. Can you even believe it? <laughs> um, and then I was like, oh, wait a second. They were around a lot, a lot sooner. But yeah, that, that, uh, I can remember buying Armageddon Massive on, uh, on CD. Um, 
at a Christian family bookstore. But yeah, I still have that one for sure. Nice. Yeah, Dingy, Dingy's are a band that I didn't know were a Christian band until later. So, but you got them you got them during the Christian period as a Christian record. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I actually got that tape um years later, like after 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 you know, I, I I saw it somewhere in some sort of a lot. I was like, oh my God, that's tape I listened to when I was a kid. I'm getting that. <laughs> nice. So on that same live record that I referenced earlier, the one that was um released this year. By the way, before I ask this question, when was this taped? That record was taped when I was on tour with Frank Turner in the UK. Oh, uh, okay. So what do you remember what year that was? 2017. Okay. So the first or second song is called God on Our Side. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's about Trump and it's also about the Christian right. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, cu- I'm curious to, to connect sort of your relationship with, with the religion. Is, is, um, this, this seemed like there was a lot of emotion and definitely a lot of anger in that song. Um, a lot of people look at the state of like the the right and the religion and religion and kind of feel like, Oh my God, what happened? But like, I think sometimes people like you and I that grew up in these more extreme versions, we were like the predecessor in a way, you know, like this, it was already extreme. And I think like a lot of the rest of the church caught up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the politics as well. Totally. Um, so the, 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 what was it like for you kind of leaving the church and then watching sort of the influence of this extreme church grow and and also influence politics well for me religion and politics were always kind of linked with within one another uh like i said my parents used to take us down to the abortion clinic and pick it when i was like five years old so like being a christian being a part of being involved with like the army of god being a soldier for god um was a political thing and they would tell us all the time that doing the right thing and being an advocate uh, for God, uh, sometimes is uncomfortable. And the world outside of our church might not understand the reasons why we do the things that we do. Um, and that is alienating within itself. So I had always associated politics and religion with each other, and I never really found them to be separate. Um, it wasn't until I was, you know, much older, obviously, that, and after I listened to bad religion, and, you know, I was able to, <laughs> I was able to say, well, wait a second, there's another side to this coin here. And I didn't know at the time, obviously, whenever you're, you're, you're being, you know, indoctrinated into something, you don't realize that the difference between the religion and the politics, but from, from racism to homophobia to Islamophobia and sexism was all, were all tenets of, of that faith that were deeply ingrained into, in, into my person that I had to, you know, um, when I found my own politics and whenever I, I, I found the thing that I actually believe in and I started to uh, uh, dismantle uh, what I had been taught and how I had been trained and learned and, and found my own way, um, I was just super fortunate and lucky to be surrounded by incredibly um, well-read leftist thinkers. So I think, I think that's how the politics kind of, you know, rat- radically changed. You know, I had people that handed me me Howard Zinn and handed me uh, Noam Chomsky to read and was like, you know, if you want to, if you want to hear something that's really true, you should read this book. It'll fucking blow your mind. So what was it like for you to watch the mainstreaming of this? 
Yeah, it, it made it made total sense to me because I'd always seen them as allies. Like I'd always seen I'd always seen them in one another's pocket. And the more that it came to mainstream, the more of that rhetoric that sounded familiar to me um, in upholding, you know, all that stuff is shrouded in like super agreeable language, like, you know, family values. And uh, we want traditional family values and like the whole bit. And it's just I think now in the political climate, people have to be a lot more careful with the things that they say because we have automatic playback and we have, you know, the fact counter and things like that. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I can remember just being told blatant, flat out non-truths or flat out blatant phobic type um, blanket statements, especially whenever I was a kid. And I think like the right and um, the religious folk have have become very um, um, very proficient in the way that they shroud their words in like very agreeable language. And like it's very, in my opinion, it's like super divisive and kind of like backhanded in many ways. Like they're just finding different ways to say things that are racist. It's just a different way to say things that are 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 classist or you know whatever. Yeah, I mean, you must have been horrified, though. I mean, obviously, what what prompted you to write this song in uh, either 2016 or 17, whenever you wrote it? There's a Bob Dylan song with God on our side that came out on a record um, called Another Side of Bob Dylan. And um, he talks about um, all the different many things that America has accomplished that we celebrate, all the different wars from, you know, from us, us murdering Native Americans to us, us celebrating slavery to us, you know, um, all doing all these things in the name of God and with God on our side. And, you know, we beat the, we beat the Germans in World War II, but now, now the Germans and us are friends because the Germans too have God on their side. And I, I kind of took a, a nod from, I mean, Bob Dylan, of course, but I just love the imagery of, of that and wanted to make like some sort of a modern folk song version of how that song made me feel. I see. Do you have a, just a, speaking of Bob Dylan, do you have a favorite Dylan record? Um, oh boy. Um, maybe another side of Bob Dylan. It's just like the really basic folky um, uh, stripped down type songs. But I mean, I love I love all seasons of of Bob Dylan. I love Blood on the Tracks. I love Blonde on Blonde. Um, I love New Morning, and I also love just his regular, just folk records that he made too. I mean, I yeah. I, I, I celebrate his entire calendar as well. Nice. Even the even the crappy records that came out in the eighties, like Empire Burlesque, where he's wearing that shitty sports coat, like <laughs> that record even rules, kind of for sure. <laughs> My other favorite ska tape that's in this group of tapes is a uh, jesus lizard lash yeah you can't <laughs> let me tell you something about the jesus lizard you put people on immediately like if, if you put on the jesus lizard you'll tell that you'll you'll weed the posers out immediately they'll yeah. be they'll go run um no that's great that's super funny the, the, the first time i ever saw jesus lizard i think only time i saw jesus lizard was Lollapalooza 95 oh wow and they were on that show i think like two bands later or maybe one band later was mighty mighty boss tones oh wow and you have those right next to each other in this uh stack of tapes whoa i know that i know that ska has gotten a bad rap in the past and there's been a lot of there's been a lot of divisiveness about ska the genre and 
and kids who were into ska would feel like people are picking on ska for a number of reasons. And um, I'm just glad to see. Because here's, yeah, because the more kids that get into guitar-based music, the longer it's going to be around. If it happens to be ska, great. I'm super stoked for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it makes me feel good to know that, like, Catbite is out there, like, super young kids who are super hungry for it and, like, stoked about being in a ska band. I love it. I'm, I'm all the way into it. All right. So you uh, you'd mentioned that on the most recent record of yours, um, uh-huh. studio record, you uh, you enlisted Bobby Cottage from Real Big Fish to play on your record. Yeah, Billy. Billy. Sorry, Billy is what I meant. Um, yeah. So how, how did this all come about? How did how, how did you get to know Billy? Well, Billy was on tour with a ska band called The Interrupters. And um, they were in town playing some big gig. I don't want to know. I don't want to say who because I'm not sure. I think it was the Dropkick Murphys, if I'm not wrong. But it was a big gig of some sort. And they happened to be on tour. And Chris, who was producing my album, was friends with um, Billy from them being from Anti-Flag and Real Big Fish being on tour together. And there were some horn parts that were um that were in our minds and billy came in and he played them and we became uh I, that was my first time meeting him and we became instant friends too nice yeah i picked him up i picked him up from the hotel downtown was he the only horn player or did you have any other horns on the record um he was the only horn player okay did you did you multi-track him to make it sound like a horn section or is it just single horn you caught my secret. You've 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 shown you've shown my underbelly, my 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 pale underbelly, all my recording secrets. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the Indefensive Ska Discord. Indefensive Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, 
How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.